And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. Today, we're going to talk about something really exciting. You know, everybody's really exciting about excited about software testing. We're going to talk about QA. Our guest today is Jay Agner. He owns a company that does QA. Um, We're going to learn all about different types of QA and testing. And, you know, even for a startup, like when should you do QA? We're going to talk about all of it today. Um, Before we get uh, get started, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale. Hiring software developers is difficult. FullScale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably that works directly for you. Please visit FullScale.io to learn more. Jay, welcome to the show, man. Matt, thanks for having me, buddy. And thank you for making testing sound exciting because we all know. <laughs> well, we're we're going to have to try today. We're going to have to try really hard for this to sound exciting. That's okay. I mean, the business of it, uh, I love. And the process is fun, too. You just got to, you know, you got to get into it. So, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I think I'm more excited to talk about the business of it. And I've seen my notes here. I, I saw this little story about how you got rejected by Uber. Like you tried to work at Uber and you got rejected and you said, screw it. And you started your own company. Is that, was that the, the nemesis of this? I mean, if, you know, it sounds great. Sounds exciting. Uh, it sounds like a great story. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, my wife's an overnight nurse or she was an overnight nurse and, uh, I was just trying to do anything I do to get her out of there. <clears throat> got, uh, my license was from Virginia. I lived in Pennsylvania. Apparently, that's not okay for Uber. And uh, they said I couldn't drive for them. I was trying to do anything I could. And then I found Upwork, which started a freelance journey that turned into a you know a pretty successful business. So uh, I would love to say that like I jumped right into starting a business. Uh, but it was more picking up jobs, doing stuff online, you know, QA testing on the side, and then uh, eventually turned that into a business. So when we talk about QA testing, for those who aren't familiar, we're talking about all forms of software testing, be it manual and automated, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk a lot more about that today. But to back to your story though, so you were driving for Uber, you weren't doing QA, like Uber was your full time job? No, or no, Uber no. Was no, your no, side no. gig? Okay. No, neither. It was neither. I was doing QA okay. full time and I was just okay. looking yeah, I was looking for anything extra uh to try to make some more money because I wanted to get my wife out of being a nurse. So um I applied so, for Uber and Lyft, and they both said no. And so you were doing, so you had a full time job doing QA, and you decided to offer some QA services as well on Upwork. And next thing you know, you had some clients beating down your door to do That's QA it. for them. Yep. Yep. And I had a problem saying no to money, and I uh, had to figure out how to get those contracts done and brought in some people that I used to work with, including my old boss, and uh, started my company. So it all sounds real easy. You just it's list easy. yourself it's just, on Upwork. You just check the box and you're good to start go. Start a business. That's it. That's it. Not anymore, man. Upwork has changed quite a bit over the years. But uh, yeah, it's it, it does sound easy. Well, so 
how did you balance that at first? Like, were you you're working forty you know hours a week or whatever, and then working another forty hours a week doing this? Or how did how did you how did you man, how did you start the business and then like start to scale it? Like, how, how did how did you work through that? Tell tell us the story about like the tipping point of how you go from doing this as a side hustle to making it a full time business. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tried to do it in a very risk averse way, right? Which was like when when it was just me, it was easy. It was fine. I would go to my job, I'd come home, I'd work on stuff and just rinse and repeat, right? And then you get an extra uh, 20, 30, 40 hours a week. Um, and then I started bringing in other people and that's where it became a little more interesting. I had to kind of balance some of that stuff during the day, um, you know, in between lunch breaks and, and stepping into the stairwell for, for a few minutes to take a phone call. Um, just kind of started to build the business up that way. Um, and I, I've always worked remotely, I guess not always, but I mean, I've worked remotely for the past seven or eight years, which makes it kind of easy to hop in and out of client calls and do whatever you have to do. So, uh, I, I, I feel like I've always given a hundred percent to the companies that I was working nine to five for. So I don't think I was shortchanging anybody. Um, but definitely in that free time slash downtime, um, you know, I would get in and, and, uh, grow the business by bringing new contracts signing off, you know, resources and kind of just growing the business that way. Well, when people think of starting a business and they think of, of tech, they usually think of creating a software company and not a professional services company like you have, which is called um, JDAQA, by the way, I should have mentioned that earlier, um, which is JDAQA.com. Um, but um, they, so they think of creating a SaaS company and a, and a product company, which, you know, you can spend like a year or two building some kind of software product and getting it to market and figuring out how to sell it. And, and you spend a lot of money and time and maybe never make any money, right? Like mm -hmm. getting to break even and all that, especially if you're selling some product for a hundred bucks a month or whatever, it takes forever. It's a long journey where a professional services business like, like yours and, and like full scale, you know, we, we do software development for other people too. These kinds of professional services businesses are way easier to start from the very beginning, right? You're like, I got people that want to pay me a lot of money to do this, and I can go hire somebody to do the work, and I make my margin. I make, you know, 10%, 20%, 30%, whatever the margin is, right? And you can almost make money from day one, right? I, mm -hmm. I would guess for you, it was pretty easy to make, you know, some sort of margin on it almost immediately. Yeah. Um, I think the key there, and I'm sure you had this experience as well, is like, you have to have expertise in something, right? Mine was in QA. So that was easy for me to consult. I, I kind of consider it like a very natural evolution from freelance slash consulting to bringing in somebody else to do the work to then kind of switching it over, just fully being um, a project-based or, you know, a service-based business that all you do is provide services to other people. I'd love to build a product, but like all the things you pointed out. Um, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard and it's, you know, I think there's a reason why there's lots and lots and lots of startup failures uh, in the SaaS space. And, you know, there's lots of failed IT services businesses as well, but I think those are for different reasons um, yeah. in a SaaS company. So how long did you continue to work your full-time business before you were able to go work on JDAQA, your business full-time? I mean, I got away with it for a long time, man. I got, I was, I, you know, we had probably 15 to 20 people, while I still had a nine to five job, um, I left my job for about a few months. And then we actually, I got hired by one of our clients uh, to do chief product development officer at a fintech company. 
And then I worked there for about a year or two. I guess it was back in like 2019. Uh, and then eventually that kind of just didn't fit anymore. And I went out to do this full time. So I did it for a long time. I was, very, you know, I kind of was double dipping uh, for the most part. Right. I mean, but doing it in a way that was fair to everybody. Like I was not, you know, uh, working during work hours for two companies. I was splitting it up pretty well. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, again, very de-risked way where like, you know, keeping my nine to five job. But I, if I look back, I probably would have left sooner. You know, I would have just done this full time years ago. So when you you were doing QA before for these companies, were you used to managing other people and, and doing all that sort of stuff? Or was owning your own business kind of your first, you know, experience and having to manage a bunch, a bunch of people on a team? I think it was my first real experience. I was okay. not a, I was not, a, I mean, I was a lead, but not in a, more of in a group capacity than any sort of like, you know, being responsible for a bunch of different people. So it, it was new. Um, but it somewhat came naturally to me, I think. And was this first time entrepreneur as well? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody who runs a business has some story of like when they were a teenager, they did some, like I made websites for my mom's business. She had an advertising agency and like back when the web was a new exciting thing in the nineties, I was making websites for them for $1,200 a pop as, you know, the 12 year old, that's a 13 year old's a big deal. Um, but yeah, first official real entrepreneurship, I think, uh, was this company. Well, I, I love highlighting the story because again, I think creating a professional service company, um, like yours, like full scale, th these kinds of, of businesses are a great option for people that nobody thinks of, right? Like if you're an expert at whatever you do, you know, you can do that for other people, but if you want to scale it, you, you've got to learn the skill set to hire other people and delegate to them, which sounds like you, you know, you went through that over a two or three year period while still working your other job and, and hiring people and delegating and all that. And, uh, it's, it's a super great idea for people that want to start their own company. Um, starting a, a SaaS company and a product company is also fun, but it's, it's also a nightmare. <laughs> it's gotta so, be fun. It's gotta be fun, but terrifying. You know, yeah. like it's, your, it's your money. Like it's your money you're putting out for that. <clears throat> for a services based business, you're just getting money. You're not, you're not like putting it out, hoping to get it back. <clears throat> it's very much like you said, the margin is there. Um, and you have to kind of well, pay people to do the work. I mean, professional services companies still take money. The, you know, you have a lot of employees and, you know, if we go back to the early story of full scale, when we started, we hired like a hundred employees over the first, like year of the business that means i had to get buy a hundred laptops i had to buy a hundred desks a hundred chairs i had to go rent a floor of a building eight thousand miles away in the philippines to do this right i had to pay three months security deposit and three months rent deposit right like that takes capital too like these That's you know it, it, these these kinds of businesses can take capital right um now not as crazy as, you know, starting a software company, but even a professional services company can take capital. Yeah, I would say it takes capital. I would just say you can, I mean, I think your example is a, uh, I would say on the, the other side of the spectrum, mine was, was everybody was remote. I do have to buy devices and buy, sure, absolutely, I have to do some of that stuff, but I would say it's still within the you know operating expense margin kind of yeah. area of, of the business. And it's not like I'm just going to, I'm not writing a check for 
$50,000 for a bunch of developers to go build a product, you know, right. maybe, yeah, I yeah. Spend, maybe I spend $50,000, but that's after I've kind of made sure that I'm going to get 150 from some clients right. first. Right. So it's kind of balanced. It's a little de-risked, I think, compared to the yeah. SaaS. Model. That's all. Well, and you've got some assets to back it usually, you know, at least some old laptops now. <laughs> sure. Right. Yes. Some, some ancient technology. Yes. Yeah. So, um, let's talk more about QA and, and testing. And I, I guess my first question for you is for a lot of the clients that you're working with, would it be surprising how many of them don't really do QA before they bring you in? It would be shocking to know the number, you know, I don't know what the number is. Um, you know, you would think that my job was just to sell our services, but there's a surprising amount of education sales that go along with what I do too, right? It's it's not just uh, for their clients to have the, the product QA'd, but also for the companies that we're working with. Like, why are you having a developer who's you're paying $100 an hour or a project manager you're paying $75 an hour or whatever it is to do the QA? Like, why would you do that? Like, why wouldn't you have them doing more projects and more development for that same amount of money um, as opposed to something that's lower cost like QA? Have somebody like us do it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very surprising how many companies kind of wait as long as possible to hand that off uh, and have somebody actually do QA. Um, or that they just, you know, it's an afterthought and they have a small, you know, team that that kind of does QA. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's you'd be surprised. Well, so my my first company was a, a SaaS company. It was a product company, right? And we grew that to doing $30 million a year in revenue and sold it. And when we sold it, I had about 40 people working in software development. I don't think there was anybody that did QA. Yeah. And so I, I was that guy. Like, I was not a QA person. I was like, look, the developers should do a really good job of, of creating quality code and testing their own code. If we have to hire QA, does that mean I don't believe that my developers can produce good quality code, right? But I also understand that developers are really terrible at testing things. Let's be honest. They're terrible at it. Um, they, they follow the directions. They get something that sort of works. They think it sort of works. They test the happy path. And they're like, okay, I'm done. Check it in. Deploy right. it to production. Yep. And then all hell breaks loose, right? So Yeah, yeah. I think my mindset has shifted <laughs> over time. Um, and it all it really depends on the quality of developers you have too. Depends a lot on the quality of the developers you have, the type of work that you're doing, um, the type of product it is, all of those things, right? So I've I've I'm sure you've probably seen some some big messes along the way that you've had to come in and and your QAing software that was just an absolute disaster, I would guess. Yeah, and I mean to your point, I think the, the complexity of software has just exponentially gotten higher, right? Like back in the day, right? Like when I started doing QA or just in general, things were much simpler, right? I mean, it was very like, do the things, do what they're supposed to do. Now you've got all sorts of integrations and backend pieces and APIs and all these different things that just didn't exist um, years ago. So um, yeah, we've seen some messes um, and we've, you know, uh, had to sometimes uh, bow out and just say this environment is not conducive to doing QA or getting these things fixed, right? And it's just not a great fit for either side. So um, we're very realistic. We know what we can do and 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 which clients we work well with. 
And I think as your business evolves, um, you can kind of learn to say no to some things and, and not take on jobs that you know are not going to be good if they're too much of a mess from the jump, right? Well, so I, I want to hear more about that. What what type of clients do you run into that you're like, you know what, we don't want to do business with these people? Like, I, I'm curious. I would say the biggest red flag for us is um, companies whose leadership don't appreciate the team that they have, right? If people are talking down to their people on calls or they're, they're you know, uh, yeah, not being good leaders, I think that translates to not good partnerships. If they're not being good bosses, if they're not being good, uh, you know, uh, representation of what they want as quality of, of a of a culture in their their company. Those have always been the ones that don't work out. The ones you get on a discovery call, they're talking shit about their developers and their designers and whatever. And you're like, this isn't going to be a great fit. Um, other than that, I mean, you know, I would say infrastructure and product wise, there's not many we don't take on. You know, because our our job is to come in and say, this is a mess. We're going to help clean it up. We're going to help consult with you and kind of give you high level strategy first and foremost of like, what are you supposed to do to get this thing back on track? And then we implement the people in the process to do it. So it's more of a, a personality slash leadership problem I see when we, we bow out. So I, what, I, what I find interesting about that is it makes total sense if you're meeting with a client and they're complaining about their team, they complain about everything in the world. And you know, in the back of your head that you know what, they're just going to complain about QA, like QA will be the new scapegoat. And so my team is going to take a beating from this, these people that, you know, they wake up every day and hate themselves and hate everyone they work with and blame everybody for everything. And we're just going to be the new scapegoat. Yep. <laughs> right. Like, cause, cause that's the problem of being QA, right? Like if you're doing, if you're doing software testing, all of a sudden, your neck sort of becomes on the line of like saying that this is good. Like it's your job now to test things and say, you know what, this is going to work and we've tested it and we're ready. So now you become the scapegoat, right? Like you become the person who takes all the blame. And the last thing you want to do is partner with somebody who loves to blame somebody for everything. Yeah. We like to partner with people who know they need QA, right? They, they just, and maybe they don't know they need QA. They just know they need a better quality product, yeah. better communication, et cetera. And like, we're okay, we're going to be a good fit. Um, but yeah, you're dead on, man. We're already the last you, line of defense. We're already like you the want, last ones. You want to be seen as the, please God, come help me be our savior. Not the, hey, we need a scapegoat. Come on in. Yeah. Who else can we blame? <laughs> Let's bring in JDAQA. No, we're, we're yeah. yeah. We're, we're, and to your point though, like we are kind of, that's the role of QA in general is the last line yeah. of defense. You could test 99.999% of things and that 0.0001 is the thing that their biggest client is going to open up and explode first and then you're going to be, it's going to be the end of your relationship, right? So you really got to be buttoned up when you're doing the stuff that we do. Yep. So let me ask you this. If, if somebody's listening and they're an early stage startup, they're building one of these product companies that you and I have agreed are very difficult to do. Um, how soon do you think they should be doing QA? Like if you're super early stage, when do you think QA is, is important? When should they start doing QA? I think when you start to scale up, right? When you start to get past the MVP phase, you know, you've got a couple developers, you're doing stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's important to get it in at any point. Um, but 
you know, really when you start to go from two to three to four to five developers, when you start introducing multiple sources of code commits, and when you get multiple sources of product managers and project managers, and there's, there's, there's opportunity for gaps to kind of form. I mean, when it's early and there's like a, there's a founder, maybe a developer or two, and you're just banging stuff out and trying to get it out. Like that's maybe not the time to be a perfectionist, right. Or trying to get, but you know, uh, it depends on the product type too, right? If you're doing fintech, for example, like you don't want to put a half-baked thing out there. Right. If you're doing social media application, then maybe some, you know, some things here and there are not as big of a deal. Or you're doing healthcare, like you don't want to screw that up, right? So um, it's industry-based, but also it's, I think it's when you start to realize that number one, you as a develop a founder shouldn't be doing QA, right? Because when you're early on testing stuff and making sure it works, is just kind of like the natural part of a founder's journey in that SaaS model. Um, then you start handing off that off to project managers and then you start handing that off to other people. Eventually everybody needs to be doing their own job, right? And I think there's kind of a core part, maybe five to 10 people when it really starts to make sense. Okay, let's get somebody else to be doing the QA that's not biased and you know that's their only job. Yeah, I had the same conversation last week with one of our teams that it's a development team of three people they're starting a brand new project as a brand new company, total greenfield thing. And our, uh, one of our project managers said, Oh, we need to add QA to the team. And my response to him was, there's nothing to QA. Like there's literally nothing. What, what are we going to test? Like we haven't right. wrote one line of code yet. <laughs> so right. it's like, I'm, I don't believe you need QA like on day one, you definitely need it at some point in time. And I, I think you you spoke really well to it. It really depends on the type of industry and the type of product and all this kind of stuff that as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know that it makes sense to have it on the first day. It's, it, it You got to have something built and ready to get to market to test first. So yeah, I mean, yeah. And to, your, to that point, we do, after you've gotten to a certain point, you should move QA further and further up the pipe. Like if you have a product, Having people who have QA'd stuff, have the QA'd that product, if you bring them into design discussions or product discussions, they can help you say, hey, remember that thing you guys made last time? It broke all these other 40 things. And like that, that's when the value in QA being early helps. But I, I agree. Yeah. Getting them in before there's anything built doesn't typically make sense. Um, but, you know, sometimes it can make sense. Well, I want to remind everybody that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. You can use our platform to define what kind of developers you're looking for and see who's available to join your team today. Um, so, Jay, something else that's interesting, um, just like our company, Fullscale, you have a bunch of employees in the Philippines. Yes. Right? And um, tell us a little bit about I'd love to hear from you about the talent that you found there, the employees that you have there. I'm, I'm sure similar experiences that I have, but I would love to hear your take on what it's what it's like to have a, a bunch of employees and, and technical people working for you in the Philippines. Uh, it's an incredible experience. They're, they're uh, just culturally and technically they're phenomenal. Um, I didn't know this until I started working with a bunch of people in the Philippines, but you know, and I'm, maybe you do know this, that like Accenture and all these other, these corporations that are over there, they have colleges in the Philippines. So when you want to be a QA person or a software engineer, you can go to Accenture college and you can be taught 
you know, all the normal stuff you would be, but then you go right into working for Accenture, making $4 an hour or whatever it is that they pay the, you know, the people over there. Um, and, uh, so we take the people who have been trained by these really great, big organizations. We treat them like human beings. We bring them into our organization. Um, we pay them well, we, we, you know, treat them as family. And, um, I've got, you know, all our executive assistants, all our virtual assistants, a bunch of our QA folks, a bunch of our QA leads, bunch, a bunch of different functions in the organization. Um, just, I love them and I, I'm jealous of your 13 trips to the Philippines. Uh, I, I need to get over there because I'm dying to meet some of these people in person. But yes, we, we absolutely love it. They're, they're fantastic. I didn't realize that Accenture had their own college. Yes, I didn't either. I was my a couple of my folks were like, yeah, we went to I'm like, you went to Accenture College. It's crazy. I didn't. Yeah, they they send you to college. Uh, they you know pay for it, but it's in. You have to work for them. Um, it's kind of like the military in that sense. We're like, they'll pay for it, but you got to put your time in uh, at at their company. Well, unlike you, we've hired a lot of people that worked for Accenture or several other big firms. Right? It's like they work at those companies for two, three, four, five years and ready to do something new and they've got a lot of experience and we're able to hire them and, and usually pay them a lot more as well and, and give them yeah. some, you know, better opportunities and, and fun things to work on. So, well, it's good, to, good to hear your take on that. I, you know, we have 300 employees in the Philippines, mostly software development and, uh, absolutely amazing people. And I will actually be over there in a few weeks. So I'm, I'm excited to be back over there. So I would love to hear from you. Um, more about your experience with Upwork. You you mentioned earlier about Upwork. And so for those that are listening um, that have found people on Upwork before, it could be very useful. But I'm curious about your experience of like selling your services through Upwork. Like well, what what is that like? Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with Upwork. Um, I love the business that they give me. I don't love the fees, but... Uh, and I don't like some of the changes they've made over the years after they went public. Uh, typically a pretty big tipping point for a lot of these companies is when they go public because they have to start having to serve shareholders. But um, yeah, I mean, I got in when the getting was good, man. I got in 10 years ago, right? I actually was on Elance, I think, at first. And then they got bought or merged or whatever with with Upwork. Um, and for those who don't know, you know, it's basically just a, an online marketplace for, for IT services. Um, so... I started building up my, my profile uh, and have, you know, a top 1% earner profile over the last few years. And when people were searching for QA, they, my face would show up. And the real, the real interesting part of my journey, I think, for me personally, was like making that change from, yes, I'll be the one doing the work to, no, I won't be the one doing the work, but I have a great team that will, right? Like that's a big change especially when your face is the one on the profile, they're coming to you thinking you're going to be the guy and you have to kind of figure out how to make this pivot because you know, the the agency model thing on Upwork is kind of bolted on. It was like kind of an afterthought and it's not a great, it's not a great place for agencies in my opinion, just because the functionality isn't great. But um, yeah, I built up the profile, but just doing jobs over the years, getting a great reviews on a bunch of them, five star reviews from everybody. Um, and then eventually kind of made this, the switch from when people would message me, I'd reply back and say, we have a great team, uh, that can get this done for you. And so it's been a great, it's been a great place for us, man. We still get a ton of leads from there. They switched their, uh, fees model around it used to be, you know, 5%, 
and now it's 10%, which isn't fun. Uh, you have to bid for contracts and stuff now, which is a little annoying, but uh, I still tell people all the time they should check it out if they haven't been on there. So do you, so I, I did a quick Google search and I found your company on there, but so do you also have like a Jay Agner profile, like separately? That's the from main company? one. That's the main one. Yeah. That was the one that we started with. So yeah, absolutely. So you still have your own separate personal profile. That, I mean, that gets more business and traction because that's the one I built up over the last 10 years. And I'll reply back and say, Hey, uh, we have a team that'll get this done for you. So I show up when people look for QA. And at one point, you know, we were top five, top three. If you search for QA on Upwork at all, um, you know, my big dumb face would show up as, as, you know, somebody to do it for you. Now, do you, how do you, how do you stand out from the crowd though? Isn't there like hundreds or thousands, there's thousands of people in there that offer QA, I'm sure. So how do you, how do you get to be the one that shows up? Did you, is that because you pay, like you advertise or like, how does that work? It, it's, it definitely came from getting in early, right? Before the, the, the rush came. Um, I also made a decision early on not to race towards the bottom, which is very easy to do on Upwork. And people get very discouraged every time I talk to people who tried it and they didn't like it. They go, well, you know, there's a bunch of people and they're bidding, you know, for $10 an hour. Well, you don't want to work with the companies that are looking to pay, you know, $5 an hour for somebody to do QA. You don't, you want to be the guy just like, I mean, just like any other productized service, right? Like you got to offer enough value to charge more money. So, you know, while, while people were charging 15, I was charging 45 and it was because I'm a U.S. based senior QA engineer with blah, blah, blah experience. And like, I was able to charge more money. And, um, you know, I got some big deals and big contracts that we ran through Upwork and I, they don't talk about it, but there's a hundred percent, a feeding the machine piece to Upwork where like, if you, if you run more contracts through it, you get more business. And I don't know what the algorithm is, but there are certainly times that we run a lot of contracts through Upwork. It feeds right back and we get a lot more invitations and proposals and a bunch of other stuff. There's definitely some part of the system that knows that you're using it. So does that mean you're running contracts through it that came from leads that didn't come through Upwork? So they're leads no, no, that just, came somewhere else? No, just in general. Like if we if we have a phase where we're getting a bunch of referrals from all outside of Upwork from existing clients, um, and we're not using Upwork as much, we'll definitely notice a slowdown in the in the Okay. But if we're in there and we're actively, you know, really pushing it, then we certainly see a lot more um, you know, contracts and stuff coming back to us. So it's like the more business you do through Upwork, the more business you get from Upwork because they know you're they're, they're like getting it. their ten their 10% or whatever. So yep. they keep they keep spinning that flywheel for you to to, to get more and more and more. And I can't, you know, prove it, but I can prove it. <laughs> I can prove it internally, but not maybe not uh maybe not on a report anywhere. So one thing I want to ask you about is manual QA versus automated QA. So there, there's a lot of different types of QA, and I want to talk about that too. But the first thing I want to ask you about is, you know, there, there's definitely always work to do to manually test things and QA things. Um, but there's also a lot of work to automate things, but it doesn't necessarily make sense to automate everything. So I'd love to get your feedback on on that part of it. What, what should you manually test? And then what should you automate testing for? What, what is your right. opinion there? Um, yeah, uh, I'm actually doing a talk uh, in a couple of weeks at um, at online test conference about this specific thing. Uh, I basically, 
there's no fully automated test setup, right? Like every, the, the goal that a lot of people have, I think, is to just like fully automate testing, don't need human beings, just set it up and you know never need to touch it again. Um, regression testing is great for automation. Um, you know, smoke testing in production, non-write operation testing, right? You don't want to write anything to the database with automation in production because that can easily go awry and you screw up your production database. Um, usability testing for manual, exploratory testing for manual stuff, one-off testing, you know, should be manual. Um, early stage development should be manual. Um, so I think you got to be in the right spot. If there's a bunch of stuff that you do over and over and over again, you're spinning a bunch of wheels and your company, you know, is at a certain place and your, your team is at a certain size, then yes, automation makes sense. Um, but I think there's always just a really, uh, important balance there between manual and automated testing. I think you always need both, right? Like it's, it's not an either or thing for me. I agree. Yeah. You know, I, I almost see you, you mentioned this earlier, like in an early stage company, it's like the founders are ultimately the manual QA people or like, we're testing to make sure this shit works. Cause yep. we got to go sell stuff. We got a meeting with a customer. We got a meeting with investors. Like I got to make sure all these things work. Right. That's how it starts. Right. But the, you need QA people that are, are more product focused. They understand how the product's supposed to work and they have like, have actually some input to all that, right? Like they're really in the loop mm -hmm. of, of how the product is supposed to work and are manually testing the things that are being done. Um, I, you know, there's probably some argument that you can use like no code QA these days. Like I've used Rainforest QA and some things like that that make it really easy to make um, scripts. And, you know, you could, things that you would manually test, you could probably build those sort of, those uh, really easy to do kind of no code QA for some things. But it doesn't make sense to do those for a lot of those things. Like, for example, recently my team worked on like, okay, what is the character limit of the field? Like you only type in 20 characters or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't make sense to build automated QA for every field on the screen and the types of inputs that are allowed and how long the inputs are and like things like that that you would kind of just manually test. To me, it makes a lot more sense to smoke test stuff. Like you said, like, can I log in? Can I go here? Can I add something to the shopping cart? Like whatever the things are, you absolutely need a battery of those kind of smoke testing through all the critical things of the system, right? Yeah. Um, but I imagine, do you have some clients that are um, talk about like 100% test coverage? And I guess that gets into like unit testing as well, not not necessarily the same thing as like QA testing or integration testing. But do you have some clients or like we want to test every single possible thing there is? I mean, I think some of them think that's what they want before we talk. And then, you know, I'm just very honest that I don't think that, I mean, for you're right, for unit test, the test coverage in my head is unit testing, right? Which we don't do, which I think is a right. developer driven test mechanism. And they, they know their code they just wrote, they should write the unit test. Um, yeah, I, I, we've run across those that they're like, we just want full automated testing. That's all we want to do. And, you know, I try to very gently break it to them that uh, you're always going to need people, man. Like machines don't have context. You see it with chat GPT and everything now. Like it's a great tool. There's lots of great AI ML tools, but they lack context and people have that context and it's much easier for, um, especially things that change, you know, like as soon as something changes, you have to go maintain these tests, like 30 to 50% of the time testing engineers bill is for maintenance, <laughs> like updating the test that they've yeah. already written. And it's like, what value are you really getting so absolutely 100% you should automate stuff, but I think there's a really important balance 
like you said, uh, you need to really understand um, what's your ROI on it, right? Like, why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you think you should do it? Or are you doing it because it's actually saving you time and money? Well, I think there's also a big difference between unit testing and that that type of testing, which is more code level testing for those who aren't super familiar with it, and manual QA and automated QA testing. So for example, unit testing a lot of times is like in the weeds, kind of like how does the watch work? How is the sausage made kind of thing where you, it doesn't replace the fact of like, what does the sausage taste like at the end? <laughs> or does the watch actually tell time or not? Like you still need like this final QA that is sort of the end-to-end -end integration test, right? Like I put this thing in, I get this thing out. You can test all the bits and pieces in the middle of like how the machine works, but you still got to test putting things in and getting things out in like a real-world test, right? Yeah. So to me, unit testing does not replace that real-world test that is still needed. And um, that's where QA comes in. And I'm a big fan of integration testing. And for example, my uh, I own a company called At Capacity that does digital marketing technology stuff. And the hardest thing for us that we don't have any testing for, that I wish we had more testing for, but it's really hard to build, is like our integration with Google Ads. Mm -hmm. like we, we create ads on Google and do all these things. But building a test for that is complicated because you'd have to like, automated like create a new account with google every time that was clean and then right. like have sort of these sterile tests that you would run through like this giant battery it's that's really difficult to do um those sort of integration tests you guys do those kinds of projects as well yeah 100 percent. yeah we work with a lot of fintech companies that have a ton of integrations um and you know there's enough tools out there there's enough processes in place where you can do that stuff again it just depends like is it is the juice worth the squeeze, right? Like, is it worth right, spending the time? Because it takes time to set up and it takes time to troubleshoot and test the tests. And to your point, like, at the end of the day, would, would that really save you enough time or would you be better off just to pay somebody to do it manually? Like, I, you know, you got to run the numbers and figure it out yeah. for yourself. It's really, it's really hard. And the, the challenge is, like, for the example of our Google integration all the, there might be 20, 50, 100 different scenarios of things that we'd like to test that would be better to automate because I don't know if I trust me manually to do all of them exactly the right way every time, right? Yeah. Um, but it's um, it's just too difficult probably for us to automate those right. all that stuff. So yeah. the answer to all this is it depends. Like everything in IT and software development, QA, all the, the answer is always depends. There is not one right answer for everything. It depends on the type of product, the, the type of software development, all the different things, the industry you're in, the stage that the business is in, right? Like if we're sending software to go from here to Mars, we ought to test the shit out of that thing, right? Because it ain't coming back. And we right. can't we can't hot fix it. Like it ain't never coming back, right? We got to test the shit out of it, right? That's totally different than the eh, my startup weekend thing. I built this little thing I put online and nobody uses it. I don't need to test it at all. And then right. there's every scenario in between. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a great point. And it's, uh, that's also why, I mean, I feel like you're making a sales pitch for me there, but like, that's also why you need people to give you a, a true answer, right? Like that's why people work with us because I will tell you what level of QA I think you need. And like, I've yeah. done this like hundreds of times for hundreds of platforms or hundreds of clients. Like I will be honest with you and tell you, 
yes, we can help you. No, we can't. And if we can, here's the path we should probably take. And if, you know, I'm a trusted partner, uh, I can deliver those results. So I, I agree. I think if you need somebody to kind of point you in the right direction sometimes in those kind of complicated scenarios. Well, people, people come to you because they need somebody they can trust, right? Yep. And it's, yep. and for a lot of companies are like, I don't know what to do. I need to find somebody who's an expert at this, that I can trust their opinion and they can guide us the right way. And kind of like at full scale, people come to us like, we need help hiring software developers. We, we how do we do this? We, you know, we, we trust your help, right? For the same reason people come to you, you're like, I don't know how to do QA or what to do. Please help me. Right. Right. Yep. Well, I do want to remind everybody, if you need to hire software developers, full scale is a, a good resource for you. Um, one other thing I want to ask you about was, uh, how, how is business? Like how is, how is the economy affecting you? You guys growing, you're hiring. What, how, how are, how is business climate for you? Business is great, man. Like I hate this analogy, but I can't stop saying it. It's like, I feel like we're like a funeral home. Like you're always going to need QA, right? You're always, there's no, like there we're never, there's never going to not be enough software for me and a thousand other agencies to, to have work when the economy is bad, when it's great, when what, like whatever, like we've, we've never really had this brick wall. Um, we don't need VC funds. So like that stuff doesn't affect us. Uh, business is great, man. Like I, you know, and since I've, you know, I'm blessed to have a really, really, really great team. My job is to focus on biz dev and sales and marketing. Like just get clients in the door, fill the pipeline up, crush discovery calls, get them, you know, get people excited to work with us. Um, so, you know, that's life is good, man. It's, it's a great business to be in. And, and, uh, you know, um, I think anybody that, that works in a, a piece of software development yeah. can drill in and have success regardless of what the climate is. We're seeing the same thing at full scale. You know, we've, we got about 60 clients and, you know, there's some that the economy has taken a beating on some of our clients. And so, you know, we, we've seen some ebb and flow from some of our clients, but we talk to new people every week that are looking to hire developers still. So we're, we're growing, we're hiring, we're, we're hiring more developers in the Philippines and, and continue to grow. But it's a, uh, I agree with your sentiment. Like there's never ending amount of, of work to be done and there's still will always be a shortage of talent. Like there's just not enough developers, QA and all these other people in the world. Well, they're never going to stop making software. Like, no. We're never going to stop like ever. So I think we're fine. Making and, and for your sakes, bad software. Right. Right. <laughs> and uh, software for us to make good. So yes. So let me, uh, one, one of the last questions I have for you is, so you, you know, earlier in your career, you're doing QA, you start this professional services business, you're doing QA for other people. And now you figured out your whole job is actually sales. Yes. <laughs> what, what is that like? It's a, I mean, you know, the same thing, man. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a. I would, it's not even a tough pill to swallow. It's just like a weird thing to realize eventually. And you, you know, you, I, I remember very specifically early in my career with this business, people would go, Oh, you're the sales guy for your company. I'm like, no, I'm not like this. What are you talking about? Like, it's dumb. I'm not a salesperson. And then eventually I realized like, Oh, I am the salesperson. Like, that is my job. My job you are the, is to bring yeah. clients in. That's it. That's like, that's it. That's my whole job. Right? Like if I do what I'm supposed to be doing, it's, 
put other people in the place in the in a position to be successful hire people that are smarter than me in different areas of business let them do their thing just bring in clients right and that's that's what you kind of get to eventually i think and then you know people hire salespeople and everything else but i think the successful kind of excited entrepreneurs never leave that biz dev role right they're always looking for the next yeah. big thing you you realize now that you went from doing QA and enjoying it and then helping everybody else do a QA to realize like now you're a salesperson. <laughs> yeah. But I love it, man. I yeah. freaking love it. I love it so much because I like, and somebody's, you know, the, you hear a million uh, pieces of advice on how to be a, a good business owner or a salesman, but it's like, once you do really make that pivot in your head and you convince yourself that you're actually helping people, it doesn't be, it's not sales anymore. Yeah, right? absolutely. How, how am I helping you becomes just a total mindset shift. And you're just like, you're, you're, how are, how am I fixing your problem? Um, it just takes a lot of the stigma and the negative stuff away from the test, the, uh, the sales side. So that, that's, what's fun about this is, you know, you become kind of the face and the brand, right. And, and, uh, and I'm kind of the same way for full skill, you know, for those who follow me on LinkedIn and, and my blog and all these other things, I'm, I'm curious for you, for, for this type of company and like full scale sales is hard, right? Like you, it's, you don't really run ads. Like people don't really respond to cold calling and email and all those kinds of things. How do you, how do you attract customers? Is it primarily networking referrals, that, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, it's referrals. Uh, but I have a pretty strong drive for outbound and outreach, uh, uh, sales. Um, not a huge inbound marketer right now. Um, I like, I like the process of account-based sales. I like finding people who we, I think would be a good fit and then figuring out how we can kind of get in contact and how to help them. So yeah, it's networking, outbound sales, but really targeted outbound sales. Not, I mean, we do some, you know, some cold email blasts and stuff, but for the most part, um, yeah, I really try to focus on bigger and better accounts that I think we can help, um, you know, be successful. Well, that's good for you that outbound is is working for you. Outbound is you know traditionally really tough for, I think a lot of software development agencies and QA agents, QA agencies and stuff like that. I would I would imagine. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you compete in the cold game, it is tough. But um, I don't know, man. If you start local, like, and by local I mean Philadelphia for me, which is like a pretty big target. Um, yeah. You know, if you get a few of them there, it becomes my my clients are my biggest salespeople. Just right? warm intros. It's not cold. It's not cold. Meetings. And even if it's cold, but you can still be like, I I work with this guy in Philly, and everybody knows that guy, and they're like, oh well, hell yeah, I'll work with you because you work with them. It's like you get you get some kind of key yeah. pieces together, and you can just you know spread that out. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate having you on the show today. Again, again this is Jay Agner, and his company is JDAQA. Check them out at jdaqa.com. If, if, if you're like, man, I really need somebody to figure out how to solve all our crazy QA problems, Jay is the guy. Um, if you need to help on the software development side, you can keep full scale in mind too. Um, so Jay, I always ask people, um, do, you, do you have any final like words of wisdom or tips for other entrepreneurs out there? And it doesn't have to be about QA. It could be about business or anything else. Uh, I say this a lot. Um, just do it, man get off the chair, get off the couch, get off the whatever. Just if you, if you want to start an IT consulting 
or IT services business and you have any experience, just start getting customers. Start reaching out to people and saying, hey, I can help you. Uh, you know, let, let, let's have lunch and, and just get out there. I love it. And I love I love uh, recommending to people to create professional services businesses like ours. Like it's a great way to get into entrepreneurship. So Yeah, I agree. All right, Jay, thank you so much for being on the show today. Again, everybody, you can check him out at uh, jdaqa.com. And uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Matt. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.